just by way of recap, you know, it starts out with observation, just observing there what's in the text. What are the words on the page in front of us? Um, noticing any patterns. Are there words and themes that are repeated? Um, are there words that seem to stand out? Just seeing what's there on the page. After we, you know, after we see what's there on the page, we have the task of interpreting it. And we do that in a number of ways. We, we see what's, what, like I said, what's repeated throughout the themes. And that's where we're going to be today. Um, what's the meaning of the words on the page? Uh, what was the author's intent? After we've developed an interpretation of the text, we move on to what's the application. Well, okay, now we know what this, you know, we know what this scripture is saying. How do we apply this? Um, as we keep in mind that when we are looking at the interpretation, that generally speaking, any text of scripture is going to have one meaning. Um, there are some places in some of the prophetic literature where there's a double meaning in the text, um, but that's usually fairly obvious that there's a double meaning there. But typically, the text has one meaning, but a text can have many applications. Um, so as we develop um, the interpretation, and today we're looking at what are the themes, what are the motifs that show up in a text? You know, doing a t how to do a topical study. Um, because we can do a topical study in an expository manner. You know, sometimes we fall into the trap. We think, you know, oh, well, you know, there's expository preaching and there's topical preaching and, you know, there's a wide chasm and there the two shall meet. But that doesn't have to be the case. We can study a topic in an expository manner. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Maybe. I think the receiver may be being blocked. I don't know. Okay. So, as we go through our, t our process of interpreting, we, you know, that we started out with considering the context. What's going on in the text? What's going on around it? Because the context is going to inform our interpretation. Then there's the interpretive correlation. You know, what's showing up um, between the text or within the text? You know, are, we seeing, are we seeing the words like knowledge show up? You know, in certain parts of Paul's letter, we, we see knowledge show up. Well, that's, there's correlation there. This is a repeated pattern. There's going to be meaning that happens that's probably coming out of those words. We're going to look at words and phrases. What do these mean? Um, and we're going to go back to uh, identifying significant words and phrases um, because there's economy of time. You know, we're going to focus on the significant words and phrases. Then there's today, there's a different type of correlation. It's the theme where we're not necessarily focusing on just the literary unit that we're focusing on, but we're going to draw correlations of themes between multiple units. And then next week, we'll pick up on consultation. You know, using, being able to use commentaries, what other people have said, and in, you know, they've done a lot of the legwork. Well, 
what are their insights, what are the insights of people more learned than ourselves on a particular text. This, yeah, I'm gonna switch over to the phone, maybe. Okay. Okay. So what do we mean when we say thematic correlation? Um, okay. What we mean by thematic correlation is it's the process of correlating themes or identifying recurring themes in related units of scripture to draw out a fuller understanding about what scripture says on a particular topic. So if you remember back in our observation section of the text, it talks about, uh, we talked about being able to identify what's the literary unit, because that's going to give us our context. Um, we saw this in Mark, where, in Mark 3, where it's talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times, in most Bibles, the, head, you know, the headings that the, inter or the translators put in for us, it'll head that up usually breaking it at about verse 23 and then saying, well, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But when we look at what's the actual unit there, the actual unit begins back in verse 20. So to understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we need to back up to the beginning of the unit to fully understand it. What we... With thematic correlation, we're taking multiple units that we've identified that correlate with one another. Um, so in the Gospels, are there multiple texts, multiple units where Jesus is talking about the nature of the kingdom of God? Yeah, we, we've seen that through Mark. We see that in Matthew. Um, so that's probably going to be a theme that we can draw from multiple texts to get a fuller picture of, well, what does the gospel say about the nature of the kingdom of God? Um, by comparing scripture with scripture, the Bible itself really functions as its own best commentary. There are, there are sections and units in scripture that we can look at where maybe one particular unit isn't entirely clear on a topic. Uh, you know, what, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus mean when he says in Mark chapter 13 that um, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son, you know, not even the son but only the Father? In isolation, that's, that's a big statement. <laughs> it's saying it would seem to be saying that there is something that the Son, who is God, doesn't know something. But is that what he's saying there? In isolation, it's hard to... The meaning of that isn't so much clear. But if we start drawing the theme through that shows up in previous units of the text, that what Jesus is saying in the Olivet Discourse be, can become much clearer. Scripture is functioning as its own commentary. Thematic correlation, it really is 
a looking at the whole is a whole rather than the sum of the parts. Um, sometimes we hear you know, the phrase losing the forest for the trees. We can get so caught up in the details of what one particular unit is saying that we're missing the whole forest about what multiple units of, of the text are saying on a particular topic. So by doing thematic correlation, it allows us to zoom out and kind of take the bird's eye view of the text of the themes that show up throughout multiple sections of the text. There are some principles that... Okay. There are some principles that we need to keep in mind. Um, there actually, I think I forgot to put two more on there, so that's my bad, but it's on your handout. The first principle... You know, remember the, the hermeneutical principles that we follow when we're doing observation and especially interpretation. First and foremost is the harmony principle. And what that means is that, that any given portion of the Bible will only have that meaning that harmonizes with the rest of the Scripture. So, and because of that principle, we can say Scripture interprets Scripture. That what one unit, what one section of the Scripture is saying isn't going to contradict what another unit of Scripture is saying. That Scripture is harmonious. And because it's harmonious, Scripture can interpret Scripture. We can do thematic correlation, identifying themes through the text of Scripture, because Scripture is harmonious. It doesn't conflict with itself. There's also the exegetical principle. The exegetical principle being that we want to be very careful, and, and in thematic correlation probably more than a lot of other areas, there can be the danger of reading into the text what we want it to read. We, so we always need to keep in mind the exegetical principle that the meaning of the text is drawn from the text itself. We're going to draw out the meaning, we're not going to read into it the meaning that we want. And then there's the progressive principle. The progressive principle being that later revelation can clarify, complete, or supersede earlier revelation. Scripture builds on itself. So what may not be clear in an earlier part of the scripture may become clearer later on. And we've seen this throughout the, the book of Mark as we've been working through Mark in our sermon series that there are some things that are that said that the author writes at the beginning that doesn't seem completely clear. You know, Jesus doesn't come right out at the beginning and say, yes, I'm the Messiah. Looking back, we know this. But as we move through Mark, Jesus becomes clearer about what he's saying. And then he becomes clear about revealing what the Son of Man has to suffer and experience. So, Scripture built, not only is Scripture harmonious with Scripture, Scripture also builds on itself. And because of that, we can identify themes. And when we identify themes, we start developing theology. So a note here, 
you know, this is the second type of correlation that we've come across in the observation. We started two weeks ago with interpretive correlation. Well, now we're talking about thematic correlation. And they're both necessary, but they're both very different. So with, you know, both involve comparisons of portions of Scripture. That's where they're both very similar. But they have fundamentally different goals. Interpretive correlation looks within the text, within one textual, text unit itself to ensure that the unit has been correctly interpreted. So interpretive correlation is the guardrails that helps us interpret one unit of scripture itself. Thematic correlation, though, looks outward to synthesize already interpreted texts to develop theology. So if I have, we can do interpretive correlation without thematic correlation, but we can't do the other way around because it's a dangerous thing to say, oh, I just want to look at the theme, you know, the theme of, say, the day of the Lord that shows, out, shows up through the Old Testament prophets. But I've not actually looked at those texts already. And I just pull all of these in. Well, maybe, maybe they're not all relevant. Um, or if we want to identify texts about what it means, you know, when Paul talks about crucifying the flesh. Okay, well, I'm going to look at all the texts in the New Testament about crucifixion. Most of the texts that have to do with crucifixion are talking directly about Jesus' physical crucifixion. It's probably not relevant to what Paul is talking about. I mean, it is, but it's not as relevant. So we need, we need to have a good understanding of each text that we're drawing in before we start pulling the themes across multiple texts. There are two stages in doing this. One is we're finding relevant themes and motifs. A motif is, it's basically, it's, it's a repeated theme that reflects the interest of the biblical writer. So what are, what are some themes that have shown up that we've identified in the, as we're going through Mark so far? You know, we're eight chapters, almost eight full chapters through Mark. What are some themes that have kept popping up through the book of Mark? Authority. That's, the, that's a big one. Authority. The authority of Jesus. Jesus, not just his authority, but his identity. You know, and that hasn't been fully revealed yet. Today is kind of the big, the curtains pulled back moment today when, in today's sermon, in today's, the text for today's sermon. But Jesus' identity is the Christ. Jesus' authority to teach what he's teaching. Those are themes that show up continuously through the book of Mark. So that would be, that would be something, if we're identifying a theme through the book of Mark, that really we should, we should really look at and develop more. Because clearly the author of, the Bibli- of that text is very interested in those themes. And we know this because... 
it just keeps popping up over and over again. So we first have to find the relative themes and motifs in a passage. This can be one of the biggest challenges in biblical interpretation. Again, because sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. Sometimes we can zoom in so granularly on a text, we're focusing on one or two verses of a particular text. And yet, if we're focusing in that granularly on a, on a particular text, we can lose that we can lose, well, what happened 10 verses before? What happened a chapter before? What happened two chapters before? What's happening two chapters later? All of which may be related, but if we zoom in too much, if we take too much of a microscopic view of the scripture, we can miss the theme. So recognizing the themes is one of the biggest challenges because we can dive so deep into a text that we're not taking a broad view at the same time. So there's a fine balance that, that occurs as we're digging through the text of Scripture. Some ways that we can identify themes that show up. Repeated vocabulary. So you know, as we're looking through some of the Old Testament prophets, um, Joel, uh, Zechariah, others, where the where the, the phrase, the day of the Lord, shows up. That's probably, a, that's going to be a really good way to identify there's a theme here. Uh, related subject matter. So we're coming up into a section of Mark where children show up quite a bit in Jesus' ministry. He says different things on the matter, but it's a commonality. Children are showing up multiple times throughout. So that's probably, there's probably a theme there. There's probably meaning because why would the author put that in there if, it was, if there was no meaning to it? The text that we, ha we have the text of Scripture and it's organized in a particular way for a particular reason to communicate a particular message. Repetition is one of the single biggest ways that we can identify our theme. So the first way to discover relevant themes, this is going back to you know, these two stages of, of thematic correlation, you know, finding relevant themes. So how do we discover this? First, we have to consciously pursue relevant content. That means we have to frame, when we're asking questions of the text, we ask our questions in a way that are looking for relevant content, repetition. We can ask, what are the significant words? You know, going back to our observation, are there significant words here? And, but not just asking, are there significant words? Do these significant words show up elsewhere in the text? Oftentimes, an author will use the same words and phrases to communicate the same ideas. So, does Mark use certain words and phrases repeatedly, significant words and phrases repeatedly. So not only are we asking 
are there significant words or phrases of ideas in this unit of Scripture that we're studying, we have to expand the question to also ask, do these words and phrases and themes and ideas show up in other places in Mark? If they do, we're consciously pursuing. Asking if they've shown up previously or elsewhere in Scripture. But this isn't just, does this same author use the same words and phrases? Do other authors use the same words and phrases? Now, if they do, do they use these same words and phrases in the same way? You know, for example, in the Gospel of John, you know, a phrase that shows up very frequently, and we see, we see this especially in John 1. You know, John comes right out of the gates, you know, swinging for the fences. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. By Him and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that had been made. Swinging, through the, swinging for the fences, the Word. The Word is a consistent thing that repeats in a very short section. But if you also go jump ahead into 1 John, the word shows up again there as well. Same author, different letter. Is he using it in the same way? If he is, that can further explain what is, what is the author meaning when he's referring to Jesus as the word. Because that's, like I said, John comes right out saying it, and that's a theme that recurs all throughout the Gospel of John. Does it show up in other places in Scripture? What we want to avoid, we want to avoid reading contemporary topics into the text. And we also want to avoid imposing topic onto the text. This is that exegetical principle. We want to avoid reading in what's not there. We want to remember that while the Word of God has eternal meaning for us today, we also want to keep in mind that these were also written at a particular time in a particular place to a particular people. We want to avoid imposing onto the text what isn't there. And we want to impose reading our meaning into it. Our goal is always pull out what's there. Scripture interprets itself. We, speak, we let Scripture speak to us. We don't speak into Scripture. When we start speaking into Scripture what we want it to mean, well, we've seen in... We've seen in the church what happens when churches start reading into the text what they want Scripture to mean. There can be all sorts of erroneous ideas about what Scripture is saying. I'm going to say something else, but erroneous is probably the safest. We re when we read in our fallen sinfulness, when we read what our sinful nature wants to read into the text, we will corrupt, we will distort, 
we will destroy what Scripture is saying. We also want to broaden the scope of our investigation. Again, if interpretive correlation is we're taking the microscope onto the text, thematic correlation is we're zooming out. We're look, thematic correlation, we want to look at the big picture. We want to look to surrounding, we, we want to look beyond a single unit. We want to look to the surrounding units. Often an author repeats themes and verbiage from unit to unit to make a point. You know, we see, again, we've seen this in Mark where a repeated thing that shows up is the authority of Jesus to teach. The authority of Jesus to do what he's doing. We've seen this sometimes when the crowds are just in awe of the things that Jesus is saying. You know, we see this right up front in Mark chapter 1. Who is this man who speaks with such authority? We have Jesus using the idea of authority himself when he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Authority. That word, that theme is repeated throughout multiple units. It has a meaning within that immediate text. But if we want to really understand what the authority of Jesus is, we have to zoom out and take the bird's eye view of the text. Thematic content isn't just limited to a single unit of scripture. Wide angle. Yeah, sometimes we're not just looking at three verses. Sometimes we're looking at a whole chapter. Sometimes we're looking at um, multiple chapters. Sometimes we're going to zoom out even further. We're going to look at a whole book. It can be useful sometimes to read the text as if the chapter and verse and heading divisions aren't there. You know, we take for granted that that later um, that later scholars uh, and early church fathers put together chapter and verse divisions in the text. Those really are there just for quick location of a text. But sometimes the chapter and verse divisions are not really in ideal places as far as the flow of a thought. Um, so sometimes to help us take that bird's eye view, we want to read as if the chapter and the verse divisions aren't there. And there are some... There are some additions. I know the ESV has it. I think maybe the NIV does. I know this, the CSB, they have readers' editions, what are called readers' editions of the Bible. There's no notes. There's no footnotes. Um, and actually, some of them, there are no chapter. There are no chapter headings. There are no verse headings. Nothing. It's the whole text. So if you're, you know, you're reading one of Paul's letters, like say you're reading Paul's letter to the Galatians, you know, Paul didn't put chapter and verse numbers into his letter. It allows us to read the letter in the flow that Paul would have written it in without later divisions imposed on it. That, reading the scripture like that 
can help us ident- or can help us take that bird's eye view better. Uh, there's a website, I believe it's Bible Gateway, um, that one of the options uh, of the many different options available there, you know, versions, whatever, one of the options is you can click to have it remove verse and chapter numbers. And reading the text simply as the author would have written it without any later artificial divisions imposed onto it can help us take that much bigger view of the text that the author would have intended. The third stage for discovering relevant themes in the text is thinking categorically. What that means is we want to develop an awareness of those things that matter to biblical writers. This is really something that only can come through being in the Word and reading the Scripture. If you were to walk up to someone who has never read the Bible and open it up to the book of Mark and say, what matters to the author? Are they going to have any clue whatsoever? None. They've never read it. Say maybe they've only read it once or twice. Are they going to have an idea what the author is communicating or what the, what's important to the author? Maybe a little bit. Probably certainly more than someone who's never read the text. But when we're in the text, when we're in the Word, when we're reading the Bible regularly, we will develop an awareness of the things that matter to to the writers of the Bible. So, for example, again, I go back to the book of Mark. What do we know that thus far through the book of Mark, where we're at in chapter 8, what matters to, to the author? The authority of Christ. That's something that's showing up repeatedly. That's a theme that matters. That's something that matters to the writer. Jesus' identity as the Messiah. You know, we haven't gotten to the place, like I said, we're there today, you know, with Peter's great confession, you know, you are the Christ. But we have run into many places before where we would think, this has to be obvious to them by now. And they're just not getting it. And it's communicated in that way. You know, we see Jesus asking the question, do you not yet understand? You've seen all these things. Do you not yet understand? We also see the idea of, you know, eyes to see, ears to hear. That's something that repeats throughout Mark periodically. I don't think it's coincidental that not an insignificant number of the miracles that Jesus has performed thus far through Mark has been making blind men see. So this idea of eyes and seeing, it's something that matters to the author. But we only become aware of that when we read the text, when we're in the text. So we have to think categorically what matters to the authors. Topics aren't always explicitly stated in the text. You know, in Mark, we've been very fortunate so far that there's a lot of the things that are important to Mark that are pretty explicit in the text. 
Yeah, the authority of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, eyes to see, ears to hear. These are things explicitly stated. But that's not always the case. You know, we'll see the idea, this, in the Old Testament, a theme of remembrance. That's something that pops, out, pops up throughout the entire Old Testament. We see stones of remembrance, an altar of remembrance, the book of remembrance. We, t- you know, we see throughout the Old Testament, you know, remember the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We see the Passover feast as a remembrance. The feast of unleavened bread is a remembrance. So this idea of remembering, this is a topic, a theme that's throughout the entire Old Testament. From author to author to author, over the span of about a thousand years. So when, when the author of Genesis, you know, was long dead and buried, you have prophets 600, 700, 800 years later still talking about remembrance. That's an example of a theme that goes beyond just one author, beyond just one book, beyond even just one specific time over a huge period of time. Remembrance. And yet, but we also see that in the New Testament, don't we? For as long as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're remembering this idea of remembrance. In the prophets Joel and Zephaniah, the phrase, the day of the Lord, that's very explicitly stated. So we have some that are explicitly stated, but we have some that we have to really kind of draw out that, oh, they want me to remember this. Oh, God wants me to remember this. He wants his people to remember these things. And the final way to develop and discover relevant themes is, again, going back, identifying repetition, but also contrast. One way that the biblical writers emphasize what's important to them is through repetition of a theme or a motif. We see some examples in Proverbs. We see wisdom and folly contrasted very frequently. So what that means is if we're reading a text in Proverbs, and in that section, that proverb is talking about wealth. It wouldn't do us well to read that in isolation because the writer of Proverbs is probably either just before or just afterwards is talking about folly. So to understand what he's saying, we need to see both together. Wealth and poverty is a frequent recurring contrast throughout the book of Proverbs. Where, the, you know, where the, the writer is talking about wealth, immediately before or immediately after, he's probably also talking about poverty. And they're paired together. We, if we look at one in isolation, we can start developing really weird theology. We have to look at both together. We're coming up to a section in Mark where this motif of children shows up repeatedly. 
That's a repetition. We need to look for that. There's, there's a meaning that the author is intending to communicate by that repetition of a theme. The second stage, so now you know, we've gone through, we've looked, we've discovered relevant themes. The second stage is we have to synthesize meaning among the passages that correspond. So, okay, we've seen wisdom and folly show up paired together. We've seen wealth and poverty and Proverbs put together. Proverbs doesn't just talk about wealth and poverty in one, in one particular section. That's a recurrent theme. Wealth and poverty, wisdom and fall, repeated themes. So then we can start drawing in, well, what's, what's, the, what's the writer saying here? Well, what's he saying here? What's he saying here? This is a repeated theme. Wealth and poverty, wisdom, folly. In like 2,700 places throughout the book, we really can develop this idea and this meaning when we pull all the meaning in together. We're looking between texts. You know, like I say, remember, we're taking the bird's eye view. We're looking between the text, or between multiple units of text. So, to accurately interpret, we have to accurately interpret the individual units being studied. We also have to identify the relationships between the units being studied. Is there a compare and a contrast relationship? Is there a repetition relationship? Is, is, one, is one building on something previously said? What's the nature of the relationship? We, we can look for corresponding passages, which is sometimes not always the easiest thing to do, but at no point in history has it ever been easier. If the topic is built around particular vocabulary, for example, crucify or crucifixion, when Paul is talking about crucifying the flesh, we, we probably want to look up crucify because crucify is not something that shows up a whole lot. It shows up, most of the references are going to be in relation to the actual physical act of Jesus' crucifixion. So we can probably not ignore those. It's in Scripture. It's important. But we can say to understanding what Paul is writing about, maybe that's not the most relevant. We probably don't want to talk about, we don't want to look up in, the, in a concordance the word flesh. Because that shows up a lot of places. It's, just, it's an economics of time thing. It's not efficient to look up flesh because it shows up so many places in so many different contexts. We're not going to get the most meaning out of that. Topical Bibles, study Bibles, chain reference Bibles can be very useful tools. Especially a study Bible that has really good study notes in it will often point back or forward to other places. Theological dictionaries, if we're looking at a theme, looking up that theme 
can give us a better explanation, but also other texts where that shows up. Online resources. Um, those are really good ways to find corresponding passages, especially corresponding passages that show up in multiple books. So for example, um, in Mark, where the people are asking you, who is this man? And then there's you know, the three different things. Who does this and this and this? I mean, they're asking, you know, where does he get this? Who is this? That's the question of Jesus' identity. Who is this? Something that matters to Mark. And yet, you know, an online re or a, dic a theological dictionary or study Bible can reference back to Isaiah where it's talking about the Lord does X, Y, Z. When we see that the people like, who is this man who does X, Y, Z? Well, that topic shows up back in the prophets. Isaiah is saying, no, it's the Lord that does X, Y, Z. That's a theme that repeats itself, not just in a different book, but in a different testament. And yet, because of the harmony of Scripture, these themes carry forward. So, looking at time... These three sections in Mark that we're coming up on, these are the, section, the themes of children. So Paul is, or Jesus is talking about um, you know, if anyone would harm one of these, it's better that they have a mill millstone tied around their neck. If anyone come to the kingdom, you must... Uh, or he's talking about, let the, let the little children come unto me. Um, so children, there's a theme there. If we had more time, we would dig into this. I am trying to be more attentive to the time because I know I, we've been running right up against that 1030. Um, but if anyone wants to write these down and is so inclined to look them up themselves later, I will leave it up there for a couple of seconds and we can, you can do that. Um, or take a picture of it. Whatever technological tool fits your fancy. So just some closing thoughts. Scripture communicates thematically. To avoid topical study is to not approach Scripture on its own terms. You know, our goal of inductive Bible study, and it's, it's one of the reasons why, you know, with, expositor, with an expository approach to teaching and preaching, we want to approach Scripture on its own terms as the author wrote it, as the author intends it. But we can approach topical study from an expository inductive framework because Scripture communicates thematically. You know, we, we see this, if you, if you remember back when we, you know, way back when, when we started studying the book of Mark in the and some of the introductory remarks to the book of Mark. Um, some, of the earliest, some of the earliest church fathers who would have been even within a generation or two of when Mark was written had made the comment 
that Mark in his organization of things didn't always report things chronologically. He even organized things thematically. We need to remember that. The authors organized what they wrote to communicate a particular reason or to communicate a particular topic, to communicate something that was of meaning to them. So to, not to avoid topical study means we're not approaching Scripture as the authors would have intended it to be approached. We must be careful to draw the meaning of Scripture out of the text itself. We must avoid reading into the text our own interests. Like I said, when we read into the text with our fallen, you know, with our fallen sinful nature, when we read in what our sinful nature wants to read into the text, we corrupt the meaning of the text and we will inevitably, and we've seen this, develop some pretty wonky theology. Different passages can provide different angles on content. Correlation reveals how a passage complements one another in the development of a context. We see this a lot in the Gospels, especially with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know, we'll see different events show up in this, you know, Jesus walking on water shows up in multiple places, but there's different angles on it. It's communicated differently. The differences in how it's communicated can tell us what that particular author is intending to communicate. We see this also show up. Themes and motifs may extend beyond a single book, but the language often changes between the authors. So, for example, John uses the phrase, walk in light, contrasting it with walk in darkness. Paul communicates the same theme. He uses different language to do it. Paul often will use walk in the spirit versus walk in the flesh. It's communicating the same theme, but the authors are using different language. We want to be mindful when a theme, when different language is being used to communicate the same thing. Oftentimes this happens when we're reading writings by different authors. So this is where we want to be particularly attentive to is the author communicating a theme that a different author communicated elsewhere? And a biblical theological approach to topical study can often make a difficult standalone text more readily understandable. That's the idea of doing this type of study is Ultimately, we want to make Scripture understandable. We want to understand. This is the Word of God revealed to us. Is there anything that's more worthy of understanding than the revealed Word of God? We want to understand what God is communicating. You know, at, at no time in history has Scripture been more accessible. Um, you know, I think back kind of in you know, when um, William Tyndall had first translated the scripture into English for the first time. 
the flack. I mean, he was ultimately burned at the stake for it because how dare we provide the scripture to people in their own language that they can understand. And he had made the statement, and it may have been as he was being executed, that he would make, this, make sure that the plowboy in the field knew more scripture than your priests, as I believe what he said. We have that today. We have the scripture available to us in our own language. And not just in our own language, but we have commentaries explaining the Greek to us so we can, we can reason, reasonably begin to understand even the original language that it was written in and the nuance of meaning. And at no point in, in history have we had that like we have now. We want to understand the scripture and that's why we do this. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time where we can dig into your word, study how to study your word, your revealed word to us. Father, I pray that, that we would always strive to understand your word more and more each day. For your word is life. It shows us how to have life. We thank you for revealing your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.